It is massive as well and smack in the middle of the desert near Iran, near Afghanistan and in Pakistan, a geography which your partner Antofagasta basically gave up on for safer uh, areas. But uh, I mean, have you factored in uh, especially the geopolitical risk, given that this is a country, Pakistan, which is undergoing right now a change of government and nobody knows how it's going to play out? So, Martin, you know, the, Pakistan's been around for a long time. And, uh, you know, I always say asset quality overrides uh, jurisdiction. Uh, the fact that we got to where we got to with this new deal with Pakistan, it was through the international arbitration phase. Pakistan played uh, by the rules. Uh, we built a strong relationship. And I think in this modern world, it's important for us miners to appreciate we need to really enter into genuine partnerships and a partnership in my mind is 50-50. Uh, the Tanzanian government is accusing Acacia Mining of illegally operating in the country. Now, this announcement caused the company shares to drop by as much as 14%. An audit ordered by President John Magufuli in March showed that Acacia, together with its other mining companies, have been evading taxes, at least in the view of the Tanzanian government, for the last 19 years. Now, the firm has been in dispute with the government since the country issued a ban on the export of concentrates in March. The restriction is costing Acacia roughly $1 million government in what's believed to be the largest compensation claim of its type anywhere in the world. The landowners are claiming $18 billion in compensation for alleged failures to reinvest mining proceeds from the Pogora gold mine in Enga province back into the community and to protect their lands. Good afternoon, nice to speak to you as well. You've called a meeting here to replace all but one of the directors at Kinsgate uh, Consolidated. Run us through some of the detail here, Michael. What, what are the main issues? current board of directors, uh, uh, they've overseen the closure of Kingsgate flagship uh, Chatri Gold Mine in Thailand. Uh, they've had a long-running dispute with the Kingdom of Thailand uh, in relation to Chatri's uh, closure, and they've uh, you know, been unable to reach a satisfactory resolution. Those clips you just heard were from news stories about mining projects that went into arbitration. From Acacia Mining's tussle with the Tanzanian government, to Barrack's fight for the Rekodik project in Pakistan, to Infinito Gold's claim against Costa Rica, there was a landholder case against Porgra, Kingsgate battle in Thailand, and there are so many more of these stories. I was recently looking through Standard & Poor's market intelligence platform, and something struck me. There seemed to be a large number of mining projects that were listed as under litigation. I delved into this further. Over the past decade, the mining sector has emerged as one of the main users of international arbitration. Does that fact seem surprising to you? If I'm being honest, it does not seem surprising to me at all. I mean, it's rare we hear of some country seizing a Nike factory, but there are plenty of stories of countries seizing mining projects. At its core, mining is a complicated business, a mining project and even more complicated asset. Both require complex arrangements between public and private investors, capital-intensive transactions, usually multiple jurisdictions are involved, 
and ultimately a company trying to exploit a country's natural resources. The potential for things to go wrong is high. Between us, we could all name a number of projects that are currently in litigation. And these are just the ones where information about the legal troubles is public. There are many more that are not formally in arbitration, but are for all intent and purpose pretty much there. When we think about mining projects in arbitration, we often think about jurisdictions in Africa and Central and South America. Historically, this has been our perception as these regions go through a wave of resource nationalism. And countries come to the conclusion that the deal they have with multinational mining companies are no longer appropriate. But increasingly, projects in developed countries are following a similar path for other reasons, like community objection or environmental concerns or permitting delays. Our guest on this episode is Tim Foden, a partner at Boys Schiller Flexner, specializing in international dispute resolution, particularly in the mining sector. Come join us and let's explore. All right, so Tim, welcome to Exploration Radio. Thanks for having me. Now, before we get started, the most important question first, what's the best lawyer joke you've ever heard? Oh, gosh. Well, I grew up in an Irish-American neighborhood outside of Philadelphia, and the big joke was always, Tim, how can you think you can be a lawyer? You're Irish. You'll never pass the bar. (laughs) That's brilliant. I always like the, uh, what do you call a thousand lawyers chained together at the bottom of the sea? A good start? A good start, exactly. So, But I'm, I'm always right. partial to that Irish one. That's brilliant. So when I grew up in a working class family, everyone was tradesmen, and you just hear them all the time. But I think in many ways, it's really good in terms of working in the, the mining space, because you, you become acutely aware of when you shouldn't be involved in something, and when you should. And, and you know, you're the first person to say, listen, you don't need a lawyer on this call. You know, I'm, I'm wasting your money or... And, you know, when I'm in Perth meeting with people, the number of times someone says, well, Tim, I hope I never have to see you again, is a legion at this point. So why law? How did you get interested in the law? I don't think I got interested in the law. I think I'm just a lawyer by nature. I wouldn't say it's like some grand vocation. It's more I am a really disputatious person. Um, I like to argue. I like to prove things via factual analysis. I like to prove people wrong and I like to fight bullies. Um, and, you know, you can do that in a relatively, and I stress relatively civilized environment as a lawyer. I don't think my jaw would make me a great pugilist in real life. So I didn't always know I'd go to university because no one in my family had. But when it became apparent, you know, in my late teens that I would go to university, it was pretty clear that I'd end up going to law school. It was never really a doubt in my mind. And then when I went, it was always clear that I would do disputes. So to me, that's the image of what a lawyer is, is not someone who's reviewing or drafting contracts, but someone who's standing on their own two feet in a courtroom. So that's that's how I got involved in the law. And that's, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I there wasn't any sort of like how, you know. Oh, like light bulb moment. I must do law. No, no. It just was sort of always there. Always there. And, you know, I 
my therapist is always sort of like, you're just such a lawyer. I'm like, yeah, I know. You know, you, you don't, you can't outrun this thing and you can't switch it off when you get at home either, which doesn't always make for the best situation. Yeah, I was going to say the uh, argumentative nature. Yeah, that that's definitely a skill you want to leave uh, in your office and not bring it home to hopefully yeah. just for the sake of your personal relationships. And look, it's that way, you know, with lawyers interacting with each other, there's so many times where I'm like, just get me out of this situation. Like, you know, I remember going into a lunch meeting, very cordial lunch meeting 15 years ago. Someone asked how my weekend was. And I said, I got a bit sunburned. And I said, we don't look sunburned. And I just thought only a lawyer would sit there and disagree with what was a casual comment about something. It was just so, it, it, it was the nature of the mindset was just immediately apparent to me. And that's why I don't hang out with lawyers when I have the opportunity not to. I think um, maybe this is somewhat inappropriate to say on our show, but I feel like there are certain people that are built for certain professions. And I think being a lawyer is one or a certain type of lawyer, I think is definitely one. And yeah, like things like a librarian is definitely one. Like, you know, like he... Like, yeah, you know, people don't, those those aren't like professions that often people kind of fall into. You know? I, I would add to that list, uh, exploration geologist, because <laughs> in the 15 years I've been working in the mining space, the folks that are exploration geologists are very much all cut from the same cloth. So I have to ask, uh, so obviously law wasn't essentially like something that pulled you in, but was mining or working in resources something that inherently attracted you? And why? No, not originally. So when you're a lawyer, uh, a, a younger lawyer, you get staffed on cases without any sort of say in the matter. You just get put on the case and you're working on that case. So for me, I got staffed on some mining cases very early on in my career. And you sort of, as your career develops, you get a little bit more of a say, but you also get to say, well, what do I want to specialize in? What is it that I that interests me the most? That could be a geographical region, that could be a particular kind of dispute, but more often than not, it's going to be an industry sector. And I think with time, I really enjoyed the, the mining sector the most and decided to put my efforts in towards working on cases in that field. And the things that appealed to me about it were some similarities with the sort of tradesman environment that I grew up in, where you know the people I knew had dirt under their fingernails. Well, People work in exploration geology or uh, mining engineering, same thing. They've got dirt underneath their fingernails, but they all have advanced degrees and are highly intelligent and have lived pretty interesting and exciting lives. And so I found that I had a lot that I either admired about them or that I had in common with them. And ultimately, a lot of these folks enjoy a beer at the end of the day, too. And I think that that sort of combination made me think, okay. This is the sector for me. This is a lot more interesting than working on like disputes over commercial transactions or derivatives products. This is something corporeal that you can see and you can feel and you can go to the mine sites. And honestly, that's just not something you can say for a lot of the other sectors, even in oil and gas. It's just not as you're not always going to get a chance to go out to a, a drilling rig platform in the North Sea, but you will get a chance to go to a, a nickel site in near the Mozambique border. I mean, that's an interesting perspective, actually. Maybe something we in the industry probably don't appreciate as much as, as someone's like, you know, sitting outside the concept that, you know, like our our office is 
fundamentally different to what you know like 99% of people are really doing or what they consider to be an office really so that's an interesting perspective actually well it was really driven home to me a few years back reading this really fascinating book called dictator land which was about you know focus each chapter focuses on a different dictatorial legacy in in africa but a whole chapter of it was dedicated to these guys who had worked for i want to say shell uh, exploring for oil in Nigeria, in Libya. And these guys were like basically Indiana Jones. They, they carried elephant guns everywhere they went and their only contact with their employers would be when their employers dropped off a case of whiskey via you know airlift effectively or airdrop. And you know, again, guys with PhDs and they're living in the bush and defending themselves. It was all just so adventurous. And that's one of the things I admire about uh, exploration and even development. You know, when you get to learn how someone can look at a deposit and figure out from a mining engineering perspective, this is how we're going to mine this thing. Uh, I find that just as fascinating as exploration did. And I think that's it's it's interesting because I think one of the things in part of your job you kind of get to see that life cycle as well that you know at the start there's nothing there and then you know slowly there's progress and and somehow you know things coalesce like things and people kind of coalesce to a spot and then you know like more happens and then eventually you know the whole life cycle is that there's a mine and there's all of the things that come with it and then obviously the rehabilitation side and and all of that stuff so you know that that the corpus real thing that you're kind of talking about, yeah, is also like manifest in kind of the life cycle of, of what we build. It's something tangible. It's, you know, it's not some like electronic transaction that goes from one computer to another. And, you know, it's just like, you know, bytes and kind of like ether or something like that. So, you know, it's something tangible that you can work with and go to and, and experience and, and kind of see and, you know, in all of its various kind of stages. Yeah. And look, very few of the disputes that I've worked on actually have come sort of at the end of a mining project. But one of them that I have worked on, um, and this is a matter of public record, as are any of the cases that I'll speak about today, involves a, a tailings sort of reprocessing, refractory processing project in the Dominican Republic. And and the project had come to its conclusion and there was a dispute with the state over various sort of legacy issues. And to go to this site in the middle of what was effectively a rainforest and see the fruits of a 15 year project borne out and all of the different technical and frankly, uh, you know, uh, meteorological obstacles that had to be overcome to put this, to bring this project into realization gave me such admiration for my client and their sort of dogged determination that this person who doesn't even have a mining background uh, had in saying, I think I can do this, and then did it over the course of 15 years. There's very few lawyers in the world that will have, you know, a similar sense of accomplishment at the end of their careers. That, that yeah that's a really interesting kind of perspective so so one thing i kind of want to unravel a little bit is that, that you know you mentioned that you know, the kind of area of expertise is really um, like you know dispute law you know like arbitration you can explain this a little bit better but you know effectively there's kind of like two types of disputes you know they can be the, the commercial side or the more contractual side but what i'm also interested in is like you know you play in the space where there's these uh 
disputes between you know companies and governments and 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 you know, and the framework around how how they come about because i think intuitively people understand the first one better because you know inevitably they've probably had you know some contractual dispute at some point you know whether it needed lawyers or not but you know but they have some familiarity with it but very few people actually get into the thing where yeah they have a dispute with the with the government and so uh, so yeah so can you elaborate a little bit around you know kind of like i guess the two buckets that that uh, most of your disputes kind of sit in or maybe there's more buckets but i'm assuming there's only two but you know, oh. can you elaborate a little bit no i mean it, it really is two buckets you know and and so in the first bucket you have commercial disputes and as you said a lot of people have familiarity with it it's one company suing another typically over a contract and the contract will designate effectively what is a neutral fora for the dispute to be heard because oftentimes these are the intersection of international commerce. So you'll have, let's just say, for instance, a, a you know a drilling company based in Tanzania that's done a contract with a Canadian mining company, and it's a long-term contract, and you know requires certain number of meters to be drilled or not in certain years. And uh, you know if one party gets gets the hump about whether the minimums have been met and whether they paid what they think they're entitled to, they will bring a claim under the arbitration clause of that contract. And very often it'll designate the applicable law, which might not be Tanzanian law. You might want to have a neutral law apply. And similarly, uh, you know, have the dispute heard, say, in London, which is, you know, uh, doesn't give either party home field advantage. Uh, and there are lawyers out there who specialize just in doing international disputes in this regard, and I happen to be one of them. And it's a fair amount of my practice. Um, and it's not just about drilling contracts. It's very often JV disputes. You know, we've gone into this project together. You're our local uh, JV partner, but we're not happy with the relationship. We need to find a way to sever it. And oftentimes you'll find yourself in a dispute over that. But the other bucket is what's called investment treaty arbitration. And this is what I do primarily. Um, it's sexy in public, but it doesn't keep the lights on necessarily in the same way that the commercial disputes do. The second bucket, uh, you don't always have a party that has anything left. And so finding the resources to pay for lawyers is difficult. And let me explain why that is the case in a moment. But to take a step back, part of the Bretton Woods economic system that has been in place since the end of the Second World War is a network of treaties that exist throughout the world. And originally, those treaties were drawn up between developed economies and developing economies. And the idea would be to encourage investment bilaterally and sometimes multilaterally uh, between those countries. And what deal was effectively struck was, right, we're happy to invest and to have our companies pour resources and build roads and factories and build mines in developing countries, but we want to ensure that there are protections in place should the state, some of which were, you know, new states following independence from colonialism decide that they want to nationalize or somehow interfere with the investment, particularly in circumstances where the investor is foreign and they might face some level of discrimination. 
So these treaties were drawn up and they have protections in them that guard against discrimination, against expropriation without compensation. And um, quite importantly in the mining space, they also provide what's called full protection and security. And that is a, uh, a guarantee that at a minimum, the physical safety, your investment and your employees will be guaranteed not only from harm by the state, but from the bad acts of third parties. Those protections very often are not just toothless in the event that the state doesn't honor its obligations under those treaties, you will be able as a foreign investor to bring a claim under international arbitration rules. Those rules could be heard either by a tribunal that's assembled on an ad hoc basis, just three arbitrators, investor picks one, state picks another, those two then form and pick a, a person to serve as the chair or president of the tribunal. Or it could be heard at a wing of the World Bank, which is called ICSID, the International Center for the Settlement of Investment Disputes, which was set up in the 1960s and uh, effectively provides a, a, a really good set of facilities, a set of rules, and ensures that any award rendered under that system is enforceable not just in the state that you've sued, but really in any state that has signed this ICSID convention. And the same is true with respect to ad hoc arbitration in that there's a treaty called the New York Convention, which means that if you get an arbitration award in respect of that dispute, again, you can take it and enforce against the commercial assets of the respondent state just about anywhere in the world. Those two treaties underpin this system. And, uh, you know, they were of vital importance and they were of a means of stopping effectively what was gunboat diplomacy. So uh, if you look back to what happened in Iran in the mid-1950s, when the Prime Minister Mossadegh was effectively overthrown at the behest of Anglo-American oil interests, this system was designed to say, listen, Rather than sending in, you know, or starting a coup or sending in the gunboats, you can sue and there'll be a neutral forum to do so. Uh, and that is where I primarily play at this moment of time. Now, coming to the, the sort of aspect of where does that fit, particularly in the junior mining sphere, is that junior miners will, if they're particularly if they're a one asset company, they'll run into problems with a sovereign and that means they have lost everything. They've lost the asset, they've lost the ability to go out and raise additional funds. Uh, and as a consequence, very often, you know, they come to me and uh, I need to help them find a funder to ensure that they have the resources necessary to bring the claim. So that's, those are the two buckets and, and primarily I work in the latter. Uh, as as we've discussed before, Alma. You took the conversation exactly where I kind of wanted to, which is around, for all intents and purposes, let's say like you know, areas that are opening up like you know, commercially or uh, investment-wise and, and things like that. So so there is always this risk around you know, jurisdictional risk or investment risk and, and, and things like that. Um, so you know, like how often do you find, uh, let, me, let me rephrase the question, would you rather be involved, you know, like uh, a little bit earlier in the process so, so companies understand, you know, like what, what type of risk they're actually taking when they go into these places rather than at the end when, you know, kind of the house is on fire and then you get called in 
to say, yep, you know, the house is going to burn down. That That's pretty much what it's going to happen. Listen, always the former. I always would like to be involved earlier for a number of different reasons. I mean, one of the things that I, I will always shock me about visiting Toronto or West Perth is that the mining companies are always going to arrange their investment into a into a new jurisdiction to ensure that they are protected from a tax standpoint, but they never look to ensure that they've availed themselves of treaty protections, very rarely. Taxes are only relevant if you're pulling minerals out of the ground and selling them. If you're an exploration property, that's something that you can kick the can down the road on. Um, but if you're an exploration property and you hit something good and it becomes subject to what we refer to as the obsolescing bargain, all of a sudden, all of your, your resources and your time and your energy have resulted in a significant discovery of commercial value, well, the state might take interest and you might run into problems. And if you haven't structured your investment to ensure that a treaty is in place somewhere in the chain, the corporate structure, then you could find yourselves trying to get remedies vis-a-vis -vis the local courts, which are not always going to well, very infrequently will they provide a foreign party with the kind of justice that it would might get in its home jurisdiction. And it's heartbreaking to me. I mean, the number of times that I've met with a miner and thought, sorry, there's no company in this chain that is domesticated, incorporated in a place that has a treaty between country A and the host country B. And it's a real problem in Australia because Australia's network of treaties with particularly Sub-Saharan Africa is very limited. Um, and so very often what you see is you just hope and pray when you meet with someone who's had a problem that they have set up an intermediate holding co in, for instance, the UK or Mauritius or Singapore or another country that has a, a big network of treaties in place with the developing world. And I note just recently that the Australian government noted that in its future free trade agreements, it will not be putting uh, investor state dispute resolution into those agreements because of controversy surrounding this particular dispute resolution system. And that was further heartbreak to me because I know that there are some people like at the organization AMEG in, Western, in, in Perth who are fighting to ensure that those protections are in place. So to me, I always wanna meet these folks at the outset and say, listen, we can do a memo for you, very cost-effective to ensure that you've set up that holding company, then you, we might ever hear from you. But if we do, we know that you have remedies available to you and we can access those remedies that we can help you. That's kind of, I guess, the point that I was trying to get to is that I think you know, like maybe the perception in uh, mineral exploration companies is that, you know, there's this opportunity in trying to go into new areas, but maybe one of the risks that they don't quite cover off often is around the risk that, you know, like exactly what you said is what happens if, you know, like I'm, I'm an Australian domiciled company and I'm working in an area where, where I don't have any protection under any bilateral treaty between where I am and where I'm working. And, and, and I think, you know, like, obviously, it's it's good for your practice that these issues come up. But, you know, like, to some degree, as an investor, you know, like, maybe that's something that you have to be wary about in certain companies as well, is that well, what actually does happen if, 
if something goes awry. Because I, I think, like, I, maybe, you know, like, maybe you can correct this, but I think the perception often is that there will always be this protection through some government kind of, kind of structure or some means. And, 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 I, and I'm, and I'm not sure that's as universally present as people think it is. No, I mean, so most, most companies operating in developing jurisdictions will have developed some kind of relationship or rapport with their respective diplomatic um, uh, core, right? Um, and then when the dispute kicks off, they might get some assistance, they might get some meetings, but that's about as far as the diplomatic personnel are able to push things. You know, they can't go to the mat for every investor that has found itself at the mercy of a new regulation. They try, but their, their resources in this regard and their need to maintain a relationship with the host state make it very difficult for them. So very often than not, you know, if you don't have a treaty in place somewhere in the holding structure, you will find yourself litigating in Burkina Faso, for instance. And, and I don't mean to denigrate the, the courts of those systems, you know, I've heard people lambast, for instance, the, the courts of India, Indian lawyers lambast them and the time that it takes to get a judgment. Well, it takes six years to get a judgment in Italy, too. OK, you know, it's it, justice moves slowly in lots of parts of the world. But what investor treaty arbitration ensures is that it moves pretty quickly. But you also have that neutrality that's that's in place. Um, but look, yeah, I, you know, I think. The, the mining companies, I think we can probably agree on it, that you get different kinds of junior companies. And a lot of them reflect the, the kind of leadership that they have in place. And that leadership often falls into a couple of different buckets. You've got the accountants, you've got the geologists, sometimes you've got the investment bankers who might also be accountants. And when they go into new jurisdiction, the approaches to due diligence diverge pretty radically, right? So if you're in the investment bank or due diligence for you and de-risking, like that is, that's your job, right? Is to, is to go out and hire service professionals to check the tax regime. And of course, geology is the central part of that. You won't do all of that work unless you've checked the geology. But I do find very often that the companies led by geologists are just so enamored with a deposit or a potential oh, deposit that they don't know. What oh, to yeah, do totally. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, totally. We I mean, let's be honest. Yeah. Like technical people are uh, highly um, yeah, susceptible to being sucked into only doing technical work and, and ignoring a lot of this kind of non-technical stuff, which, you know, might be far more important at the end of the day. Fortunately for me, most of my clients that I'm currently representing <clears throat> had a mix of sort of expertise at the board level who'd say, look, uh, you know, we know what's happened in this country. Can we go out and get some advice and, and the structuring will be there? Or, and this is really quite particular in many ways to Canada. Canada knows that its miners are operating all over the world. So they've gone out and they've put in a network of treaties, a lot of them very new, in fact, with all sorts of bells and whistles that not only protect the interests of Canadian miners abroad, but seek to do so in a very fair way with the local government and ensure that there are carve-outs in those treaties to ensure that you know, they're not getting sued for things like 
environmental concerns or uh, you know legitimate ex exercises of their police powers. Um, I just think that you know not every mining jurisdiction sort of has recognized that and and used its diplomatic relations to get on the forefront of its own you know uh, particular industries. To flip the argument a little bit, do you often get approached by by governments that come to you and say, "Hey, like you know, we want to set up a a, a system that 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 encourages certain things." So you know, like, so what type of I guess treaty structure should we take, or, or you know, like, do you, do you often get like you know, um, I guess import or uh, or clients from the government side? Not me. Um, I, I, I think I have a reputation, maybe I'm overstating it here as the sort of person that goes after governments and they don't approach me. I, I have absolutely no objection to, to working for governments. And there are government, there are cases that I've seen brought recently where I thought, mm, I think the government's probably got that one right. Um, I worked for a firm previously that had handled a number of cases on behalf of states that involved mining, including Gabriel Resources versus Romania. Uh, I wasn't involved in that case, um, but I would certainly talk to and deal with states. There's one state in particular that I've had a lot of negotiations with, and some days in those negotiations will even mention, like maybe when this is all over, we get together and we we have a word about how we might, you know, structure certain things to ensure that we're still getting the investment we need, but certain national interests are protected. And um, I, you know, I would love to do that because I do think that ultimately what this dispute resolution system is aimed at doing is inculcating norms of conduct in states that yeah. might have yeah. been communist before and, you know, aren't particularly au fait with free market activity. And mm -hmm. I know that there are gentlemen, there's a guy named Peter Leon, who's at Herbert Smith Freehills, who's a a friend of mine, and, and he does that role. He gets brought in. Look at this mining code. Look at what we're thinking about doing here. And I do think that folks like myself and, and Peter as well, who have seen it from the claimant side, have a pretty uh, interesting and, and helpful view that could help states in ensuring that their mineral codes revisions don't hurt existing investors, but ensure that perhaps the state is getting a, a bigger slice of the pie. And that's one of the things that, you know, when this whole resource nationalism, that sort of more recent wave of it started, say in 2015, that I think a lot of states misunderstood is that for the most part, I do agree that a lot of mining companies are not always paying the greatest contribution towards the development of the state and its treasury. And a lot of mining companies agree with that as well. It's a matter of process. How do you go about getting a better bargain between investor and state? And if you just go back, go in like a bull in a china shop and sort of do everything retroactively and slash things massively without getting them on board, well, you're going to end up hurting the investment climate and existing projects, and it's going to be very much a counterproductive approach, whereas there is a way of working with existing miners to develop a framework that's mutually beneficial. That's kind of the point I think you made at the end, which is kind of important, is that uh, I, I don't think anyone bemoans countries when they when they make certain decisions, because yeah, ultimately, 
you know natural resources are uh, are you know of nat- of national interest to the to the country so and and you know and, and once the resource is gone like you know it's a non renewable resource so you know like you kind of lose the opportunity to monetize it or uh commercialize it in whatever way you can um so i don't i don't think that like you know, I, I mean I, i'm not speaking for the industry itself but i think the more, more logical people could kind of assume that that's actually a logical outcome when you think that that imbalance is is not right then you know like surely there should be a structure where as much of the value of that national resource should be kept in the country as long as possible before it kind of goes outside um but i think your point you know at the end is that th- there is a mechanism that countries could use rather than you know kind of like napalming the landscape to try to kind of change the you know the, the the baseline and yeah and i think that's where you know like often, often my my question to you around the the you know whether you get approached by governments is that because you are kind of seeing you know so many disputes there there are probably commonalities in all of them that you are a privy to that that you know could improve the baseline across a lot of kind of jurisdictions and yeah you know, like maybe there should be a little bit more effort kind of doing that as well yeah rather than just look, the company side i agree and I actually can say hand on heart that all of my clients have wanted to develop their mineral resources, that they have you know, put time and effort into prospecting, exploring, developing, some cases even building, um, and they want to pay their fair share. They haven't been speculators. But when this issue becomes electorally driven, that's when it's just easier to paint with a broad brush and call the miners, as in one jurisdiction where I operate, uh, so-called foreign investors who actually want to steal from us. And you know that's where the sort of us versus them mentality that is driven by electoral forces can be just so harmful. And the reclamation period after something like that has finished is, is quite painful for everyone involved. Um, now, I do think that the sort of tide of resource nationalism is slightly receding, but that doesn't mean there aren't other difficulties that foreign miners are facing. Um, and particular, I've seen just as that wave has started to you know, crash, you're seeing now an increase in illegal mining in a lot of different jurisdictions. Mm-hmm. And that's also a problem that international law, as embodied in the agreements we discussed earlier, contemplates. So one thing I guess you you kind of mentioned, which I'm quite interested in, that you know, like in, in often certain jurisdictions, mining companies are looked upon in a certain way. Yeah, you know, like they have a certain uh, brand, let's call them. Uh, yeah, you know, like and then that either that brand is looked upon favorably or is looked upon very unfavorably by by jurisdictions. Um, do you, do you find that's the case as well? Do you do you find that governments have a certain perception of what they think of? you know, like mining companies because of, I guess, you know, like say crimes of the past or behaviors of the past. And then, then, you know, basically that reputation is is kind of what they are using to judge the companies a certain way. Oh, 100%, you know, and and look, I think um, the mining companies, no matter what they do, are going to be viewed as people sort of plunder resources. And that that is a reputation that I don't think they'll ever be able to outrun. And, And it works its way down into everything, you know, like the idea that you would use cyanide for, for gold leaching, like that, that's just completely untenable to governments, no matter how safe 
remotely it can be done. And, and that's sort of just this watchword. And, and all they need to do is go to a publication and say, these guys want to use cyanide. That's the stuff that the war criminals use to kill themselves. Like, it's just that kind of very simple narrative that mining companies are not able to shake. And, and in many instances, they shouldn't have to. What is really interesting to me in the past few years is circumstances where mining companies aren't just viewed as the enemy because it's a developing jurisdiction that people have traditionally or historically plundered of natural resources. But when foreign companies are introduced to an environment with a proud national mining heritage that has been predominantly state run and all of a sudden you're not up against an anti-mining in if anything on the contrary the mindset is very much pro-mining but the mining has for 70 80 years been an organ of the state you know the, the ceos of the mining companies wear a military uniform they get ranks like general and you are a foreigner that's come and tried to introduce new methodologies, perhaps some exploration. And all of a sudden you're viewed as someone trying to step on national interests. Notwithstanding the fact that the previous government might have said, maybe introducing some competition into the sphere would be a good thing. That's one of the more interesting sort of environments. Because as a, as a lawyer, you know, we don't cookie cut these cases. You can't go into that environment and say, ah, this is just like resource nationalism from Latin America. It's a completely different uh, kettle of fish and you have to be able to identify what sort of ingrained national interests you ended up against. It might not have been that way when you got there, but you know we're seeing a tide of nationalism in many countries and all of a sudden you know, a, a, a state-owned company could be viewed as, as the heroes of the state. Do you care to comment why this wave of I guess resource nationalism is kind of kind of going across. Um, I mean, you've been, I guess, across most of these kind of jurisdictions. Is is there something like some commonalities that you find in why why this seems to be occurring now? Um, I I did study political science as a undergraduate, and I think that there are um, probably factors at play that just as a as a lawyer, I'm not equipped to comment on, but. It, it does absolutely coincide with just the broader rise of nationalist tendencies, even in the developed world, even in my home country of the United States. You know, there are synergies and, and the timing is the same across the countries. And I think if there was disaffection in, a in the largest economy in the world that could prompt the appointment of someone who was running, sorry, the, the election of someone who was running on effectively this nationalist platform, then the developing world is going to be just as susceptible to those sorts of forces, if not more, right? You know, you you have big mining companies operating in a country, but the poverty levels haven't improved. Well, that's right for someone to come along and say, well, it's their fault. Not the government's fault, but their fault. And they're not paying their fair share. And so I think that that sort of disaffection that started around 2010 and, and that era just caught on in, in other jurisdictions. But at the same time, and I've said this every time I've spoken on resource nationalism, at root there are some, some legitimate gripes about the share and the split of mineral wealth. 
Um, and I think you you alluded, you, you mentioned it earlier. That's not to say that I think any of my clients were the ones that were taking advantage. Well, most of my clients are exploration companies that hadn't even gotten to the production stage. But that doesn't mean that the split has always been equitable. And I think that um, it's more a matter of how you go about fixing that inequity um, rather than just whether one exists in the first. Yeah, like maybe something that the industry can take upon themselves is that often we um, we only really kind of get through this uh, cycle towards the uh, towards the end. Yeah, like we like we, yeah, like we're uh, reactive to kind of these things rather than sometimes accepting that. Yeah, like maybe utilizing something from two decades ago is probably not appropriate in the current environment based on, uh, you know, like what what the sense of I guess fair uh would be now, and so I think often yeah, you know, like like mining companies I think to some degree have this bad reputation because you know we often always uh um you know like made to change so much you know like kind of like at the uh, at the barrel of a gun like you know like it's not that we often are kind of going out there and saying hey you know what these set of economic circumstances that are like 25 years old are not appropriate now, you know, like we should, as the industry should kind of pull these things into the modern era. I think it's always the government that goes, Hey, like, I think this is now, you know, like a completely inequitable kind of setup and companies will go, no, no, no. But until it's like the last possible recourse and then they'll go, well, okay, now, like, you know, like now we'll play by these new rules. And, and this, you know, you also see NGOs stepping into the fray and saying, actually, have you guys stepped back and looked at the nature of this relationship and how one-sided it is? Now, sometimes I think that that goes too far, but you look at the concept of social license, right? Um, you know, there are a lot of mining companies in the world that are very reluctant to acknowledge its existence as an actual thing, um, but it is. You have to get the local communities on board if you want to start a mine project. Um, and what I bemoan, though, is that I've seen the concept of a social license go from something that that you have to acknowledge is real as something that is now weaponized against companies. Um, you do find companies that are on top of it. They know that getting local buy-in is absolutely crucial to their operations, but they make all the efforts and then they're held sometimes at ransom uh for projects that you know they've done it all right but you know what if that local community doesn't feel they're getting uh say as much as the neighboring local community they might just become completely obstructionist in that regard or even worse and i work on a case where uh of the three local communities concerned two bought on board uh one effectively then was uh um you know, the efforts continued to get them on board, but when the mine infrastructure was going to be located in one of the other communities, they just could not bring these people to the table despite significant efforts. And sure as anything, within time, that community's, you know, distrust towards the other communities led to uh, effect effectively an armed takeover of the mine. Now I'm shortening the, the details there, but this is sort of social license gone wrong. Um, you know, the efforts were made to get the social license, but if someone wants to take your mine at gunpoint and mine it for themselves, 
could one actually characterize that as social license? I'm, I'm not so sure. <laughs> That's right. This this perception that we have around that when mining projects go bad or or they, or they go into arbitration, you know, like intuitively we always have this model in our in our sense that you know, like it's a certain country and you know, there's been a, like a military coup or there's some, been some government change and, and that's caused this kind of, uh, uh, yeah, like it, that's kind of moved the, the goalpost, so to speak, around how mining development should be done. But, yeah, maybe maybe this is a question to you is, are you finding more and more that it's actually not just these kind of high risk jurisdictions? It's also these, you know, like what we would consider relatively low risk or or develop kind of um, uh, jurisdictions that, that are having these issues around social license and environmental protection and um, any uh, other kind of issues rather than just the jurisdictional part. Oh, yeah. I mean, 100%, Ahmad. I mean, you know, look, I think, yes, I do a lot of work against developing states, but, you know, I just finished a two-week hearing against Poland. This is an EU member state. Um, and with incredible infrastructure uh, the, the developed world is not immune from these sorts of behaviors and conducts and and uh, that is one of the most fascinating developments of the of the system that I've worked in as the fifth during the 15 years that I participated in it's not just the developed states that are getting sued now Sometimes it's investors from developing states suing developed countries. Uh, and, the, and rightfully so, the treaty is supposed to work both ways. So you will have uh, an investor, as I've seen before, from India, who went and did a project in a different part of the world and found themselves shut out because they were a foreign investor. Um, the developed world's by no means immune from, you know, playing games with its own permitting process in order to stop a project that had done everything right, you know, that that was entitled to an environmental permit, that had gotten the local community on board. But ultimately, an NGO steps in and says, we don't want that done there. We don't care. We don't care. The, you know, they, they can always just point to mining. And so you will see claims brought against developing states in respect of what were politically hot button projects, but which fulfilled and ticked all of the regulatory boxes to get built. Um, and, you know, I think that that is one of the reasons why you see certain developed states actually retreating from the investment treaty arbitration process. Most of Europe has gotten rid of its participation just in the past few weeks in what is called the Energy Charter Treaty which was intended as a multilateral treaty to ensure energy supply, not just oil and gas, but renewable energy and certain minerals that are being pulled out of the ground, including uranium. And you've got Spain and the Netherlands and just, well, I guess 10 days ago, Germany pulling out of that. And why are they getting pulled out? They're pulling out because they got sued too. Uh, mm -hmm. Spain got sued over 40 times for uh, drastic changes it made to its regulatory framework for photovoltaic power generation and, uh, you know, has done some very interesting things with its mineral resources in recent months as well uh, and, and in recent years. So, you know, it, it isn't just Latin American countries. It isn't just sub-Saharan African countries. 
if you are going to discriminate against a foreign a foreign investor, or if you're going to play games with your regulatory framework to suit an electoral need, then you could be just as liable as anyone else. So one of the questions I guess I have around this is, what does the end product of actually taking a government to arbitration actually look like? I mean, yeah, like is it, um, yeah, is there a, a a resolution there that actually works for both parties, or or is it just more, uh, you know, just to recover, I guess whatever you can at that point, and, and yeah, is is the resolution meaningful to what what outcome people really want to get out of it? Look, I'll, I'll come to that to answer that in a moment, but back to your original point about you know developed countries that are you know have permitting issues that is, comes back to one of the original points we had in this discussion which is i have met many a miner who thought i'm investing in this developed country i don't need to check whether there's a treaty in place because you know this country wouldn't do that to us that's not always the case now you might have better luck in their judicial system but you take a country again to come back to poland as an example you know, the EU saying, if you have a problem in Poland now, you have to go through the Polish courts. Well, the European Commission has actually brought uh, various proceedings against Poland for what they view as a lack of independence in their judiciary. So they're speaking out of both sides of their mouth on this issue. Now, coming back to your point, what does it look like? Listen, you know, I don't just sue states. I'm a problem solver. I've helped mining companies with all sorts of problems that have nothing to do with going after a sovereign. And I view my job very much as achieving the best outcome for the mining company. So the first discussion we have when we sit down with a mining company is say, what do you want to get out of this? Do you want to apply some pressure, but ultimately get back into good graces with the state and develop your project? Do you think the project's too far gone? And you, you know, you think that the breaches that the state has um, has committed in respect of its international obligations have rendered this project valueless, such that the best approach for you is to go all the way through the arbitration process and get an award? Or do you want us to be part of a negotiation effort where we are acting sort of iron fist to the diplomatic velvet glove. And I've done it in all of those circumstances. I think one of the things that I don't like about a lot of disputes lawyers and is that their instinct is always to punch first. And that's usually my instinct, but you have to step back and say, this is client-centric business. And I have worked for mining companies that have had horrendous things happen to their mines, illegal invasions of their mines by thousands of illegal miners. And they'd sit down and they'd say, Tim, what we want is to get that asset back. And we have been trying and trying and trying to meet with the state to get this and we're not getting anywhere. We need to try and marry that diplomacy with some litigation or arbitration. And we knew then and there that our job was to work with the sort of diplomatic effort to, or the negotiation team to come to the best solution. And that meant that you had to be mindful of the sort of things that you said in your written pleadings, right? You can't accuse a state that you're trying to get back into business with of, you know, lying or committing fraud during the course of the litigation proceedings. You have to maintain some level of 
communication and not salt the fields because you could very well end up as the litigator, you know, sending that final bill and saying to the client, good, I'm glad you got everything you needed out of this. I'm glad that you don't need me anymore. Next time you're in trouble, give us a ring. Sometimes it's too far gone. And so what you are doing is taking a case all the way through hearing and uh, waiting for an award to come out. And like I said at the beginning of the discussion, the awards are enforceable anywhere. And if the state doesn't pay up, which they frequently, more frequently than not, they, the states do pay these awards because they know there are consequences if they do not. But if they haven't paid it, you can take that award and you can say, go slap a sticker on the side of an airplane. Or you can take it to the World Bank and say, we got this award from your disputes resolution center and now they want liquidity from you, the respondent. You need to take the fact that they haven't honored their obligations in your dispute court to heart when honoring that quest request for liquidity. So you have all sorts of options available to you. But when I meet with mining companies, they usually have two questions. One, if we do this, is it like pulling a pin out of a grenade such that we, we are down this path and never can go back? And I always say to them, Look at Anglo Gold Ashanti's experience in Ghana. That was not a pin out of a grenade situation. The CEO of that company, a gentleman named Venkat, was masterful in ensuring that, that that project is sort of back at the forefront of Anglo Gold Ashanti's portfolio. Um, and the other question is, if we win, will we actually get paid? And the answer to that is, more often than not, yes. There are states that will not pay, and you have to to stalk their assets. And sometimes you're in a line with other creditors, but it's better than realizing no value whatsoever from a project that you put years and millions of dollars or pounds into developing. Through your career, as you've kind of done these disputes, is there anything that surprised you that, that you know, like now when you kind of look back with the benefit of hindsight, do you go, you know, like uh, it's not something I would have expected would happen uh, through these kind of like disputes and arbitrations that you've done? I am always surprised pleasantly when a state, you know, says, yeah, maybe we should sit down and meet. Um, and, and when you can go from a highly disputatious footing to something that is everyone's trying to work something out in the best interests. Um, I think I've always been surprised unpleasantly by how willing a state and its lawyers, and it really is the lawyers more often than not, to sort of attack someone who, a company that sort of really put their best foot forward in their jurisdiction as carpetbaggers or speculators, uh, as, as just there to rip the country off. And, you know, our clients are people too. They're not mustachioed robber barons who like, oh, ha, 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 I can't wait to get in there yeah. and pillage the natural resources. And, you know, a lot of times these are people who spent years on site trying to develop a resource and to be called that could be that really hurtful. And that's one of the surprising things too, is you meet the CEO um, who all of a sudden is this big softy. And, you know, how could they say that about us? You know, how can they paint us as speculators when I spent months trying to ensure that we got new motorcycles for the local police and that we were, had built this health clinic and we had administered vaccinations. It's, you know, to see these big hard miners suddenly feel 
hurt. It, that was always a surprise. But um, no. But often there, often there is a bit of a power imbalance there. There, there isn't it? Yeah, you know, like the, the country, you know, the sovereign state kind of recognizes that that yeah, like whether in in real terms or in perceived terms, you know, they have power and and they try to. Uh, you know, suppress or kind of push the company a certain way by by utilizing that power. Yeah, and look, it's it's gotten worse than just. I've seen coercion. I've seen people thrown in jail. You know, these things happen. There are people who I've worked with over the years who have had not so subtle threats made to their lives. Um, so the power power balance can grow quite stark. Uh, particularly in the junior mining space. And, uh, you know, I, it's not surprising to me because I've operated in the space for a long time, but when you're at a cocktail party and you explain that a, an official from a government has said, I hope you have somewhere to sleep uh, that's safe tonight, you know, it surprises them or to meet a gentleman who's lived in a country for all of their life and they've had to relocate because all of a sudden they had the temerity to say that the changes to your regulatory framework have gone too far. Um, you know, those are the sorts of things that unfortunately aren't surprising to me anymore, but they would surprise the officious bystander for sure. Uh, have you been in any of those situations? Uh, situations where you thought, yeah, maybe, maybe I don't want to show up for that deposition or yeah. maybe, maybe this is not the case I really want to fight for? So, some There have been a number of situations where, you know, you realize very quickly that you're uh, a foreigner in a in a place that you might not be particularly welcomed, and your opposition is making you sure feel that you aren't welcomed. Um, I've never had anything overt done, but I, you know, I was in a terrible car accident in southern Russia once that happened. Um, in very unusual circumstances, and after our opposing counsel had told us more than once that they couldn't guarantee our safety in getting out to the mine site to do a site inspection. And um, I, you know, I've, I've I recently had an occasion where someone said, well, look, we'd like you to go meet with someone. They're insisting that that meeting take place in this particular province. And you know that this province of this particular country has a reputation for lawlessness and that this person has connections to that lawlessness, but you need to get a result for your client. And you're like, well, listen, can we meet in the capital? That might be you know, better. Now, I didn't end up having to go, but uh, you know, I, I very, very, very much wanted to meet in the capital because look, we're lawyers, you know, I'm by no means immune to these sorts of things just because I got a law degree 20 years ago. No, 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 that's right. And I think, um, um, I mean, yeah, like, um, yeah, we kind of make like somewhat light of the situation. But I think, yeah, like in, in these uh, situations, there is a capacity for, for this thing to go downhill really, really quickly. And, 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 and yeah, and it does happen. Um, yeah, like, I, I guess, like, yeah, like the way I kind of think about it is that, yeah, like, the the start of this process or the start of that relationship between the company and the state kind of deteriorating is really the pathway to 
uh, you know, like the the rule of law kind of dissipating. So you know, so 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 the end product of it could actually be something that you know, like where where you're not governed by that rule of law anymore. So it's one of the reasons why I do take umbrage with a lot of the sort of articles you'll see in the likes of the Guardian or or publications by NGOs when when you meet someone from Barrick who went through what Barrick went through in Tanzania from say 2016 onwards and who had to fight tooth and nail to get employees of that company out of jail people who are only just doing their job and they have legitimate PTSD it makes you angry when you see suggestions that these folks were operating um illegally but it also mm-hmm. you know our jobs as a lawyer and i i still you know i initially wanted to practice public interest law where i'd work with disadvantaged disadvantaged people and the first thing you do when you take a class and sort of client intake is you have to show empathy and understanding for the plight of your client well when you meet with someone who was an executive at a corporation you don't think you're going to have to step back into that role but all of a sudden this person's telling you about really harrowing circumstances and it'll break your heart and and you need to get back into that right listen you know we're going to try and do our best to help you here and I'm I'm really sorry for the experience that you had in the country I should say that wasn't me meeting with someone from Barrick in the context of assisting Barrick but I've met with the folks and everything with Barrick in Tanzania is copacetic now but a lot of people mm-hmm. who came out of that experience are still carrying around the scars of what was a really uncertain time for a couple years there. Yeah, you know, I think that's the way I kind of look at this. That at the end of the day, you know, most people on both sides, I think on the government as well as the company side, are trying to do what they think is best for for, for all parties like involved. Um, and so, so you know, so no no one I think is trying to you know to use your kind of adage. Yeah, you know, like no one is that. You know, like mustachioed, kind of like yeah, like tying someone uh, to the railroad tracks, like, and yeah, yeah, like yeah, like uh, you know, like this, it's not, like that's not really how uh, like I think people are kind of you know like going uh, or, or wanting to act. Yeah, like it's just that there is obviously a uh, you know either a perceived or or, or an actual kind of slight, or or they feel like you know they they're being disadvantaged by someone else. And, and then people try to, to, to manipulate that situation as much as they can. So I think, like, genuinely, you know, this perception that mining companies going in and, you know, what they really want to do is rape and pillage as much of these resorts. Like, you know, that, that's not really how most companies would want to operate. Because you got to think about it from the point of view is that if you're a company that acts that way, you know, like, like what type of um, appeal would you have to investors and things like that? You know, like, maybe you might be able to do this once or twice, but after that, you know, like, like you're gonna get fried. Like, no one want to want you to work in that jurisdiction, and no investor would want to put money behind you. So, so why would you want to do it? No, look, I mean, we're only as good as our name, and and once you've sullied that name by engaging in in tawdry practices, good luck. I mean, there are some folks that have managed to sort of live those nine cat lives, and it's pretty remarkable to see that they still end up in projects. But you know, the companies I work with, they're publicly listed. You know, they're operating on highly regulated stock exchanges in Australia and in Toronto. And, you know, of course, sometimes they'll say, well, of course, we didn't get any trouble. We're publicly listed. But like, you know, of course, a lot of companies are publicly listed and do do really uh, untoward things. But for the most part, these folks are really aware of, you know, just what 
consequences could befall them should they do something that's problematic. But to come back to your point, I mean, this is one of the reasons why I really like to get involved in the disputes early, not when everything has hit the fan, is because we actually have value to add in trying to see if we can assist in getting the relationship back on track before a, a trigger letter under one of these treaties is necessary. Because we've been there before. We've had to deal with states in these particular, like, sort of pre-dispute footings before. And we have value to add. And guess what? It's going to be a lot cheaper to get me involved at the outset, where you're just asking me for some advice and help write some emails and maybe a couple of meetings than it will when you have to bring in my entire team and we're handling a dispute that requires the assembly of 400 page submissions. And in recent years, with more mining I've done and the more my reputation has sort of become a known in some of these mining jurisdictions, the more often I am getting involved in those early stages. And I enjoy that because again, you're sitting down and you're figuring out how can we solve a problem, a very basic problem, and do so without me having to incur lots of costs. And mining companies, everyone in mining is so um, uh, skin in the game, skin in the game. So they always think that my interests are always naturally aligned with taking a dispute all the way to the finish line. And what I'll say is we always prepare as, as if we will end up going to trial. That's one of the mantras of my law firm, Boy Schiller Flexner, is that every time you take on a case, you imagine that case will go to trial and you act accordingly. But that's not what we want for our clients, because if you get a resolution that is better for all parties at the outset and can perhaps preserve a commercial relationship with the state and you're going to be operating there and making money, that's much better. And guess what? You'll go tell your friends that we helped and we'll get that next case or you'll have some issue come up with the contractor and we'll handle that. So I'd m rather much. I'd much rather sort of work towards creating that virtuous circle than go in, finish some dispute, beat somebody up, and then never get called again because that that mining company is basically, you know, yesterday's news. Mm -hmm. That's right, and I think you use the word in, in your kind of thing like a relationship, and that and that's kind of I think the the key thing that yeah, you know, like companies as well as maybe governments have to realize is is that it really is a relationship and. Yeah, and for the most part, if you think about, you know, like relationships, you don't necessarily want to run your relationships by every letter or the, you know, by every clause in the contract or, or things like that. Yeah, you know, that's not really a healthy relationship. Yeah, um, you know, I often kind of say like, you know, like people are often married, but, you know, you don't, uh, you don't handle disputes in your marriage based on your marriage contract. Yeah, you know, there has to be like, if it's got to that level, you know, you probably, it's, 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 it's a nuclear relationship then anyways. Yeah. And so, yeah. I agree. Thing is, you always want to like, like you know, you always want to try to preempt these as many of these issues in the relationship as possible without having to, you know, to, to to get to that to that stage. And so, you know, so in the perfect world, you know, someone like you would actually be the advisor early in the process, not necessarily the the person that's coming at the end to kind of, you know, like keep the two people apart and or, or you know, like find whatever way you can. You know, by that time, I think, you know, like there's a very small, like. um uh, a very small, like you know, like uh, basis of outcome that you can kind of get. Yeah, you know? like it's it's pretty it's pretty narrow. Your options have narrowed. I mean, th there is a medium, medium like a sort of medium space to strike or a balance to strike. You know, I remember the one of the first mining cases I ever did was over a failed 
shaft sinking project. And the, the project manager, contract manager once said to me, he's like, Tim, we took that 300 page contract and we put it at the bottom of the drawer the minute we started, because if you start throwing contractual clauses in your client's face all the time, well, good luck. And I was like, yeah, I get it. You got to preserve the commercial relationship. But you guys also just basically didn't act in accordance with the contract at any point forward. And now I've got to reverse engineer who was wrong and right there. Um, but similarly, if you are a mining company and you are bandying about a potential treaty claim in every letter you send to the relevant ministry, not only are you going to put the states you know, back, back up, but you might, when you actually do face real interference, be viewed as the boy who cried wolf. Not everything that the state does will amount to a treaty breach. It's got to be something that is definitive in character. And one of the things that we do is when we do get involved early, we'll say, listen, it's pretty apparent that this country is not going to let you pursue this project. But you might not be there just yet. It might be that you need to send some very carefully worded letters, not threatening ones, but letters that will sort of flesh out whether this state has decided that the project won't go forward and they're using pretext to stop that project. So when we're involved early, it's a lot easier. But I have been brought in cases, I've met clients before, they said, yeah, listen, we lost our license, but it's all gonna be fine. It's all gonna be fine. Don't worry, we'll be in touch. And uh, we're like, well, I'm not so sure, but listen, if you just keep bugging them, they'll think you're some sort of ambulance chaser. We gotta relax. And then one time over the New Year's period, a few years ago, all of a sudden all those companies called me and they're like, well, our assets have been put out to tender now. Now, thankfully in those circumstances, the clients hadn't done anything in their discussions with the government that prejudiced their, their, their positions when they actually had to bring claims, but very easily could have happened because when the government's telling you, we're gonna give you something back, of course you're gonna go along with them to try and do it. But you kind of need a lawyer around when that happens because you need to make sure you're not putting your foot into it. And that's one of the things we can do. And we're gonna be a lot cheaper at that stage than we will down the road. Yeah, and I think, uh, yeah, like uh, I guess it's the age-old adage that, yeah, like if, if you kind of get involved early, you can kind of mitigate, you know, like a lot of the things, you know, that, that are eventually going to lead to the house burning down. So, uh, but, you yeah, know, but if you, but you've already at that stage, you know, there's very little you can kind of do and very little you can salvage out of that situation. So, you know, I think there's this perception that, you know, like, ah, she'll be right. Like, you know, everything will be fine. And then, and then it's kind of like, you know, when it finally gets to that point, you go, well, no, 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 this is it. This is the the only outcome now possible is this. And then I think that at that point, you got no recourse to do anything else. Um so it's yeah, so like, why wouldn't you actually get that advice as early as possible? Yeah, and look, that, the other facet of that too is when the house has been burnt down, you don't have any assets to pay lawyers to do it. Now, fortunately, <laughs> one of the right. things that has really changed junior mining in the in a in a significant way, in my view, is the advent of third party litigation finance, and basic premise there is you've lost everything, but you've got a really good claim. Now, a lot of junior miners would say, ah, them's the breaks. Now we're heading on to the next asset and we'll all start exploring in some different jurisdiction. But you can do that, but now try to realize some value from the 
the project that didn't go forward because of sovereign interference. And there are lawyers in Perth and myself who've been really successful at marrying these junior miners with the third party funders to say, right, well, we can bring a case now. Of course, the third party funders will get uh, a significant multiple of their investment in legal fees, but you'll be able to realize some value for shareholders that might not have otherwise been there if you had just you know, scotched it and gone on to the next project. And you know, that, that has led to a significant increase in a number of cases. It's not always fun. The process of getting uh, third-party funding is quite laborious, but uh, it, it it is a way of achieving that outcome. And thankfully, but it is a better. Um, I mean, at the end of the day, it's a better option, right? Like, I mean, if you're a junior company whose whose whole value is built around an asset, and you don't own that asset anymore, you don't have security over that asset anymore. Yeah, like like how how are you ever gonna go through the process or fund the process of ever getting it back? So. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so I I think this is a probably a, a better alternative than 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 the other kind of pathway that you'd have to take. And what's interesting too is that, like I said, you know, you can live your life as a geo or as a mining CEO or president and still do the litigation. You know, a lot of my clients, uh, they are pursuing other assets in other jurisdictions whilst serving as witnesses in the case and being my client contact for ongoing litigation or arbitration there are peaks and troughs in terms of their busyness on the cases but you know they can live their lives they're not going to have to relive the entire project just by virtue of being a, a sort of claim vehicle so you know most of the companies that i work with now are pursuing other projects they haven't just packed it up uh, because they ran into interference in one jurisdiction or another now that's interesting. So we always ask our guests two questions towards the end. So the first one is, what is something that you think needs to die uh, in our industry? So normally we ask about mining, but but you can kind of broaden that a little bit to 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 your profession as well. So um, so what is an idea, a concept, a behavior that you think we need to jettison out of out of what we do? That's that's a really good question. Um, I think it would be this idea that you, you you don't that you just invest you sorry that you structure your investment on the basis of tax uh, you know I, I find it really silly when you started an exploration program that you know is going to take years and years and years and the first thing you've done is ensure that you're in like the BVI or you know the Channel Islands you know what good is that going to do you until you're actually have a producing asset? But what it might do is stop you from being able to protect yourself in the event that things go potty. I also think that one of the things that needs to die is the idea that um, that illegal mining isn't different from artisanal mining. There are artisanal mining projects out there, but the scale of the illegal mining that I now see in certain countries is clearly backed by corporate backers. And it's large scale and it puts people's lives at risk and it doesn't lead to the development of a lot of these areas surrounding the mines. People are only in it for themselves. And there's a big difference between that and the sort of destruction it can wreak on a company, a company's 
excuse me, a country's natural resources and communities than a couple of people panning for gold on the, on the periphery of a mining footprint. And when we confuse those two terms, we are painting what I view to be a considerable evil with something that people talk about when they buy a beer or cheese or bread in using this artisanal language. They are not the same thing. One is often outlawed by the state. Indeed, Uganda has introduced significant criminal penalties for those involved in illegal mining. And one is a sort of, exactly as it sounds, an art, artisanal activity. But when thousands of people from outside of a, of, a, of a particular district have invaded a mine and are involved in highly centralized, organized, and, and fully financially accounted for work crews to develop resources that are then shipped somewhere else and abroad, and the government doesn't get any tax and the local government doesn't get the benefit of new roads, hospitals, or schools, that is a problem and should not be confused with the artisanal mining. So it's a part that really sort of hits the left of center in me. Um, and I don't like it when those expressions get confused. I think that's an excellent point, actually, because I think if you're talking about real uh, like national resource destruction, you know, legal mining like not only destroys the resource but destroys everything else around it as well and and leaves nothing of value value behind arguably you know it probably does a poor job of extracting the most value out of the resource most of the time as well because you know like people are just in it for kind of the low hanging fruit and and they'll leave a wave of destruction afterwards so and and if an ngo wants to get its backup about the use of cyanide Go look at the water bottles that are being carried around with cyanide in them so that people can use that at illegal mining sites. And, and these, we're talking about children now who do that. Some evils are greater than others, right? And no matter what people want to say about my clients, they're not leaving a path of environmental degradation the way that illegal miners do. And so last question. And so conversely. What is something that you think needs to be maintained in our industry? Uh, something that's fundamental to our DNA that we shouldn't forget? Optimism. You know, it, it's been said of, uh, of explorers that the, the world, of mineral explorers are the world's great optimists. And people that, you know, mining engineers, I recently said, oh, uh, said something like um, foolish optimists when they're looking at, uh, you know, a feasibility study. Misguided, yeah, misguided, misguided yeah, optimism. Like, mis misguided optimism. But look, I, like I came back to with the example of my client Envirogold operating in, in uh, my former client Envirogold operating in the Dominican Republic. These are people that saw what was effectively a jungle site and said, well, this tailings dam is full of nasties, but there's also gold to get out. We can fix the nasties and we can get the gold out and we can build this project up over 15 years. And they were not daunted by that prospect. And, you know, we have a lot to do as a world if we want to meet certain environmental targets and certain minerals are gonna be key to doing that. And if everyone sort of brought this, well, you're never gonna do it anyway mentality to those challenges, we're gonna be in deep, deep trouble. And one of the things that saddens me when I do these cases against states is 
so often their defense is one of causation. Well, you were never going to be able to mine this project in the first place, so we shouldn't be liable, no matter what we did as a state. Well, I think that that is a, that's a really cynical way to go through life. And one of the things that I love about the mining um, environment is when I meet one of these geo CEOs, is seeing that flicker of optimism and hope and excitement about a resource in their eyes when they meet with me. And they're like, yeah, listen, Tim, I'm never gonna need your services, but man, you should see this asset. I think we're in really good hands. These are people that are still sort of, you know, going where no man has gone before and they're, they're there and they wanna deliver value for themselves, of course, but also for the countries in which they're operating. Again, I think it's an excellent point. Yeah, you know, that 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 kind of pioneering spirit. And yeah, yeah. You know, like, and I often I kind of explain that. You know, like sometimes you know people say that they are. Uh, you know, like the mining industry has a, a record where where a lot of these kind of endeavors went went badly. And yeah, you know, like, and I, I kind of explain it by saying that if you're doing something pioneering, you know, there are going to be some car crashes along the way as well, because you know that that, that is kind of the nature of of, of pioneering. Yeah, you know, that there's certain yeah, like if you if you look at kind of like your home country, you know the people that went uh, out west, you know, when the west opened up, you know, there there were huge levels of of, of car crashes and yeah and yeah and things that went wrong for a lot of people, and, and and I think this is kind of the modern day. This is an industry that has its probably a far greater share of these kind of uh, kind of problems that come up because you know like most of the people are trying to do something new and, and and that means that there's always a risk that it could go pear shaped somewhere along the way look you know there's the expression you have to break a few eggs to make an omelet i think one of the incredible things about the space mining finds itself in now is they're trying to break a lot less eggs you know there's a genuine concerted effort on the part of mining companies to continue to do something pioneering but to do so in a way that respects local heritage, respects local law, respects the need to develop communities and respects the environment. And again, I came to mining as someone, I'm left-leaning. I don't, when I meet these clients and I get to know their operations and what they genuinely intended for the places they're operating in, I tend to find it more inspiring. I don't ever look at it and go, you know, that that my cynicism isn't engaged when I meet them. and my wife works in sustainability. And she, you know, for ages, she'd be like, well, I helped to rebuild the world that that Tim is trying to tear down. And I think with time, she's gotten to realize that, um, you know, the, the, the mining companies I work with, they have good intentions, right? And uh, they are trying to improve their conduct. That doesn't mean that they still aren't punished for the sins of their fathers. Yeah, and I think, uh, yeah, like, so I think there's like two things. One is that, uh, yeah, most people's perception of the mining industry is, I think, a few decades old. Yeah, like, I, I don't think what, what people are judging the industry, yeah, it's almost that kind of like colonial era kind of way of, of, of country, like countries, or sorry, companies operated. Yeah, like, I'm not sure that, like, I don't think there's any company that could operate like that and, and still survive as a, as a publicly listed company. Um, and I think so, yeah, so that's, I think, like, one kind of aspect that, 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 uh, mining companies get hammered for but the other aspect is that yeah like uh, other um other industries don't seem to have this kind of problem like you know like we don't crucify the the fashion industry or or any of these other industries which have also had a hugely checkered past for a long long time 
Um, so yeah, so I think there's always this kind of like, um, uh, you know, like uh, unequal kind of perception where on, on one side, you know, like you you you're utilizing an image on on the industry that is far outdated, uh, but then also not acknowledging that that you know there has been quite a lot of change over the last twenty years, anyways. So maybe ch- mining needs to be a bitter champion of itself, you know, in, in that regard. I, I'll finish with an anecdote. You know, I have a client. Uh, and one of his other projects is a lithium project in Cornwall, England. And, you know, you asked me about surprises about seven months ago or so, I opened up the Guardian of all publications to see them absolutely praising and putting this project on a pedestal. And I rang him and I said, Richard, do you realize you got the Guardian to praise a mining project? And he said, yeah. But we need lithium and Cornwall needs development investment. It's the perfect marriage. And so we need a bit more of Richards out there to sort of say, you know, we're not all bad guys and what we're doing is good and helpful towards the energy transition. I think that's a pretty good spot to end on. Thanks a lot for joining us, Tim. This is great. Thank you so much for having me on that. I really appreciate it. Cheers, man. This episode of Exploration Radio was brought to you by Ahmad Salim and Steve Beresford. Produced and edited by Sean Jeffrey and recorded remotely in November 2022. Exploration Radio is supported by the AIG, the One to One Group, and the Assay, and is the official media partner of the 2023 PDAC Conference. Until next time, let's keep exploring.